Hello, Japan by River Cruise is made possible thanks to those who donate to the show at japanbyrivercruise.com and also due to the generosity of our corporate sponsors. This week's show is brought to you by a new major motion picture. In a world where the Prime Minister has effectively stepped down so that he can focus his energy on the COVID pandemic and also on not being publicly humiliated in a general election, one man has the power to save us all. But you had better say his name in the right order. If you enjoyed Konotaro as Vaccine Minister in this summer's blockbuster, The Suicide Squad, you'll love him this fall as leading candidate for next Prime Minister of Japan. He's a straight-talking maverick who's shaken up dusty old Japanese politics as usual by being a third-generation LDP legacy who uses the internet to spread vaccine and public health information to everyone he hasn't blocked. The critics are already raving. The Japan Times says he has more social media savvy than most other Japanese politicians, and also that he's younger than most 80-year-olds. Ken Quarterly says, oh god, this is going to be so good for business. And Bloomberg Asia says, his giant tastes delicious. Coming soon, direct to the Twitter feeds of everyone who still has access, Kono Taro in The Boss Baby. <laughs> Hello, Brian, and welcome back to Japan by River Cruise. I'm Bobby Judo. Hello, I'm Ollie Horn. And joining us this week is Dr. Megha Vadva, visiting fellow at Sofia University in Tokyo and currently research associate at Free University of Berlin. She's been researching the Indian diaspora in Japan since 2013, and since 2014, she's been the cultural advisor to the Japanese-owned Indian-themed River Cruise buffet franchise run by Abashi, where she mostly advises them to stop. Megha, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. On this week's show, Megha shares some insights from her book, Indian Migrants in Tokyo, as we look at the way the COVID-19 entry restrictions have affected Japan's Indian community. Is Japan in danger of damaging its reputation with the country that gave Japan such enduring cultural staples as uh, curry powder? Uh, unlimited non-refills. And... Buddhism. Yes, that also. Before we get into that, though, Ali's got your weekly river cruise recommendation. Ali? Yes, Bobby. This week's recommendation is my birthday river cruise because it's my birthday on Saturday. Just like a load of insane Japanese birthday parties I've been to, I'm going to ask one of my friends to sit at the entrance of the boathouse with a cash box and take a thousand yen from each of you uh, for a contribution to two Domino's pizzas that have been ordered two hours in advance and have already gotten cold. What a way to turn 30. And in industry news, the Japanese River Cruise Union has proudly announced that the vaccination rate among its members has now surpassed the vaccination rate of the American River Cruise Union. So get ready to hear about that and nothing but that on their Twitter feed for the next three weeks. All that and more coming up, but first, Soap Talk. Brian, are we all good on the schedule for the Step Up Challenge walk that we're doing for Tell? Yeah, why not? So, Mega, thanks for joining us today to talk about the Indian community in Tokyo and in Japan at large. Uh, I wanted to start with a quote from your book where you said that integration into Japan comes with a rule book, but that that rule book is written in Japanese and that no one will ever give you a translated version. Okay. I think a lot of a lot of immigrants to Japan have this experience. Can you can you tell us kind of what you were feeling that made you see it this way? So during my interview, uh, people often talked about like the struggles they face at their 
workplace and uh, they do things which they were not meant to do but for their colleagues that was something obvious and they were expected to do those things and because they didn't do it they were told off like or you know so mm. that nagging happens in the in the workplace that nagging can happen in the neighborhood that nagging can happen on the train and and foreigners are expected to behave in the ways the japanese people largely behave and when they don't behave like that that nagging happens but but the question is who will tell these foreigners how they're supposed to behave and uh, how is it possible for the foreigners to actually be like japanese i mean for all foreigners you know mm-hmm. some of them can be and some aspect of us does become japanized too over the years well yeah what went through my mind with that quote is you're true but there should be a caveat that occasionally they try and translate some of it and they put it in cartoon form uh, and they <laughs> they have they have foreigners looking like really evil as they're not separating their trash or as they're you know doing something bad on a train so basically your your, your quote is true to the extent to which the walls of the subway stations are full with posters telling you how to behave <laughs> and every new international student gets the most insane cartoons to try and persuade them uh, to behave normally <laughs> It's it's funny that you bring up the idea of foreigner representation in cartoons as you are currently dressed like a cartoon bandit, Ali. This, oh, is, yeah. this, is, this is Ali's new look. He's got the horizontal black and white stripes. He's just missing the mask <laughs> and the bag that says money thrown over his shoulder. I, I wore this shirt for my first gig out of quarantine and I put a picture online saying how pleased I was to come out of quarantine. And all my friends on Facebook didn't say, oh, great that you're out of quarantine. They all said, oh, you look like a mime artist. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, Ali, do your mime routine real quick, and I'm going to ask Megha, can you give us an overview? <laughs> Megha, can you give us an overview of what the Indian community in Japan is like? How, how large is it compared to other countries? Uh, how long has it been here, and what do they do? So, uh, the Indian community in Japan as of uh, 2020 is around 40,000. And uh, in comparison mm-hmm. to the popular destinations like UK, US, uh, Malaysia, uh, or UAE, the population of Indians is really low. Even Germany has more Indians than Japan does. Uh, last, when I checked, when I was writing my dissertation, China also had more Indians than Japan did in the time. I haven't checked recently how it is. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, So the Indian migrants, like uh, the first connection, like we also talked about in the introduction, was through Buddhism. You know, it was in the 6th century, uh, 7th century Mm -hmm. when it started. And then um, uh, it was actually late 6th century uh, when the first, you know, contact with India-Japan started via Buddhism. But the the Indians, when they actually started coming as, uh, you know, traders, merchants, was in the 1870s. And from there on, Mm. uh, the population has increased. And today, in 21st century, we have a completely different trend where we have many professionals moving to India. So, like, the modern Indian migrants were in the... They started coming uh, in the 1870s. And... uh, so when they when they did they were merchants and then they were trading japanese silk and uh and now in 21st century like things are very different we have many it professionals professionals in other field and we have indian restaurants and there are people uh, even english uh, even language teachers and uh, or teachers like 
professors and there are people in all kinds of uh, professions who move to Japan now. I've just managed to navigate my way around this pane of glass. Uh, so um, welcome back. Thank you. I was reflecting on just this when, when we were preparing this show. I was thinking about what my kind of cultural stereotype of the Indian migrant is. And I simply don't have one. I think for lots of countries we do, right? You know, for better or worse, there's, there's the, the idea of, you know, I don't know, when I think of, of a Filipino migrant, I, I, I think of nursing because so many nurses in this country uh, are from the Philippines. And every nurse that's dealt with my grandparents uh, lately has been from the Philippines. And I think of lots of countries you can think of, oh, that's that kind of expat, right? But India, I don't have one thing because India is such a big country. You have like the CEO of Google is an Indian migrant. And you have the kind of people who you talk about in your articles who are earning 50,000 yen a month, uh, living in squalor, you know, w w washing dishes and being exploited. And that is what I argue as well, that people think that majority of the Indians that are moving to Japan or other foreign countries are only IT people. Largely, they are IT people. Of course, that is the thing that mm -hmm. has led to, you know, uh, the professionals moving abroad. Like IT has been the main main aspect of it. But IT is not the only aspect of it. And like, you know, like you, you were also saying, so yeah, it is also because like India is also changing. People are, uh, you know, there are all sorts of people <clears throat> working in different professions. You wrote an article recently about how the COVID-19 uh, pandemic has affected Indians, especially in the restaurant industry. And one thing that I was really kind of taken by was this idea that there were all different people from different business sectors, different sectors in India who are coming over as professionals, as investors, as business owners. But there was kind of this, kind of the same way that no matter what you want to do as a native English speaker, if you come over to Japan, you end up in an English teaching track. There almost seemed to be this Japanese expectation of Indian people that pushes them towards the restaurant track. And it's the same as the Aikaiwa industry. I mean, that's where the money is if you're if you're here. And there was somebody that you interviewed who came over originally working for Credit Suisse mm -hmm. and then ended up in the restaurant industry. So the thing is, like uh, the this person and also uh, like him, there are a few other Indian people who were originally having or doing very good jobs and very well-paid jobs. Uh, but along with their jobs on the side, they opened Indian restaurants. And the idea behind opening Indian restaurant was to be an entrepreneur. So that feeling was there that they want to start something of their own. And I think having an Indian restaurant also helps them uh, create a strong connection with the community. And many of them also open with an intention uh, that they want to do something for the community. And because there are not many Indian restaurants when there are many Indian restaurants, but uh, they want to make something authentic. And uh, or, you know, so mainly the, the main attraction comes from the desire to be an entrepreneur. And it probably helps that they can identify it as something that's probably going to be profitable. It's something that that will make money with Japanese people as well. Bobby, no coffees uh, to celebrate this week because last week we didn't ask for any coffees. Instead, we asked people to support the Step Up Challenge by Tell, which you and I are going to be participating in. Uh, so we need to say thank you to those that have already supported. Uh, thanks to Kumiko Jacobs, who said we will be walking vicariously for the cause with you and our dog with Ollie's cat. And then she wrote Orange Teamas, which she wrote in Hiragana, so I could read it out. Also, thank you to Tom Stryker, who donated to our page, and to Kevin Meyerson, who made his own commitment to Step Up Challenge, but gave us the credit. 
Thank you very much. It's not too late if you want to get involved. The Step Up Challenge is still ongoing. All you need to do, all you need to do, I say it as if I'm cool with it, all you need to do is walk 20,000 steps, which actually I found out is not that much. Apparently you're supposed to walk t like 10,000 steps a day anyway. Uh, so if you want to join us, uh, there's information on last week's show uh, or there's information on our Twitter or you can just message us and we'll give you the lowdown. But please do consider supporting it. Uh, it seems like a good thing to do to raise support for a uh, very important cause. With that, Bobby, shall we jump into the news? Bobby Judo, what's in the news this week? Well, the COVID-19 related entry ban uh, has affected the entire foreign community in Japan, but Mekai is uniquely placed because of her research and her identity to talk about how it's affected the Indian community. So I'd like to start with that. Um, Mega, how has that entry ban affected the community and the livelihood of Indian migrants here? I think it has majorly affected the lives of the Indian. Uh, so we will, let's start from the spouse category people who have been separated from their children and their spouse. And uh, mm. many have been separated for as long as like one and a half year. One of the recent person that I spoke to was not able to meet her daughter for like one and a half year, six-year-old daughter for one and a half year. And she literally broke down when I was talking to her. And uh, mm. and then about the people are at the verge of others who uh, in the professional uh, sector, they are at the verge of losing their jobs. And the companies are also not able to... Uh, so they are at the verge of losing their jobs. And the companies are also not being very supportive, some at least. Some mm. of them are supportive because they are letting these Indian people work from India remotely, uh, but the their salary has come down. So they are going to, they will end up paying taxes in Japan. And mm -hmm. some of them are probably also paying the rents in Japan, but their salaries are as per the Indian level. But they continue to do so because they yeah. don't want to lose their jobs. And then those, uh, there are companies that are threatening their employees that if you don't come back, uh, you will lose your job. And if you want to keep your job, you have to pay the monthly insurance or the pension charges that were deducted from your salary. So they are at the verge of, I think most of the people that are stuck or uh, that are stranded in India are really frustrated. And uh, mm. the, the, the information is also not very clear. Every time they change the rules and there is no transparency of as to how this is, when is this going to end? or how things would be like. Mm. So they can't, I mean, both, everybody is frustrated. Even the companies are frustrated because they can't see when their employees are going to come back. And right, yeah, yeah they, can't they can't plan, plan. they don't know. And so they are like, okay, we have to get the job done. So we have to let you go. So they are also in a difficult spot. But then these people continue to pay their taxes. So it is, you know, like all their savings are gone and now they don't know what to do. But there is a, yeah. a good news which is that now they are entering via a third country, some of the people. But, uh, but the bad news in this is that it would cost them a lot to do that. And of course, the reason they have to do this is India has been treated 
pretty badly by Japan in terms of the entry restrictions, right? I mean, look, we, we've covered this story two or three times on the, on the podcast now. I, I think most people listening to this show know about the entry restrictions and, and about how Japan was kind of playing fast and loose with different lists, different rules. You, for some reasons, you could come in. If you came in, you have to have proof of not having COVID before you travel, and then you have to isolate, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but I so think you could come in the, if you're an athlete. You could come in if you're a musician. You can come in if the Taliban <laughs> took over your country. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh it was yeah there, there was there was almost there was ba there was very little uh logic to it but one thing that did seem to happen is india with the delta variant and also with the, the crisis that happened what was it four or five months ago now where you know levels just skyrocketed and there was the ventilator crisis and whatnot uh it, it seems that japan said well we're not even going to bother. We're not even going to bother finding a little sliver uh, of opportunity for, for Indians to to travel back and forth to Japan. So do you think, you know, before we talk about, you know, the Indian identity and, and and these kind of very personal stories, do you think that on a practical level, India's had a bit of a bad deal just by virtue of the fact that it, it had some bad luck uh, in its handling of the, of the crisis? Okay, so I think like it's not just, uh, it's not India. It's the Indian people, the Indian migrants who are dealing with these consequences because... Uh, uh, diplomatically, mm. nobody is negotiating at this at this level, you know, like nobody is, uh, for example, when in Europe, they had they had come up with this that uh, for the people coming to India who are vaccinated will have to quarantine for 14 days. And diplomatically, people mm. stood up and they said that if you don't let us come in without quarantine, the vaccinated people without quarantine, then we would do the same to the people coming from a few countries in Europe. And they retracted that announcement. And they were like, okay, you know, some countries mm. said, not everybody. I, I don't know what is the status at the moment. But then people, the, diplomatically, they stood up when it came to things in Europe. But nobody is negotiating with Japan at the moment. And it's uh, just to add, it's mm. not just India. There are other countries from South Asia too. Uh, I just checked the list this morning. Afghanistan, Afga but they are letting the refugees from Afghanistan enter now, is what they announced. Uh, Bangladesh and mm. Nepal and uh, Sri Lanka is also in the list. I want to ask about the Indian migrant experience in Japan, because in looking through your book, I got the sense that maybe a larger proportion of Indian migrants in Japan are doing things like raising families across borders or sending the money that they earn here back home. Um, how has that experience been? How have those connections between the Indian community here and at home been affected? So I think like any other migrant community, uh, many of the Indian migrants are stuck in Japan because they have not been able to go back to India to celebrate the festivals they would celebrate with their family and their kids together. So they're not able to get that exposure. But of course, they are doing those festivals uh, in Japan uh, they conducted last year, if, if most of the festivals were conducted online. So you can imagine how mm. it was interesting that how they just accepted the challenge and they still went on with the celebrations. Uh, but at the same time, it is hard to enjoy them online, you know, but that is what the whole of the world is doing at the moment. So uh, we can't, you know, complain about that. But the problem is that... Uh, Many of these migrants who are stranded in India went back home because of some emergency situation, like the parents have passed away or the parents are severely right. ill, you know, in situations like that. And then uh, they are stranded there and they are at the verge of losing their jobs or are being paid less. So their, their support system has come down. But in terms of mm. the uh, professionals who are not stranded but are stuck in Japan, 
their salaries, if not affected, they are able to send money and maintain an online relationship with their families back home or within the community if they are able to organize something. Whereas in the in uh, about the cooks, uh, the situation is different because their salary is already very low, and if they are getting pay cut, then they are not able to support their families. So the situation for the professionals will be different from the situations situation of the cook. I noticed you also interviewed uh, a number of people who uh, are living in Japan but have sent their children home to school in India. Yes. So uh, earlier. Like the early migrants, this was a very common trend where the male would migrate to the foreign country as the uh, breadwinner of the family. He would work hard, earn and send back money home, whereas the wife would stay with the, with the in-laws and grow up the children there. So she would do her job as a wife. Is what was a trend? Yeah, this is. They have a similar practice in Japan, where they send the Japanese husband away to a transfer to work. They call it tanshin fudin, and then in um, English we call it leaving your family. Yeah, but I think like in uh, in the Japanese case, many times these women are happy with this setup. But in case of the, uh, maybe they are not. But uh, I don't know. What is the? Well, this is this is something that. This is a little off topic, but in your book, it was also really interesting to hear about the perceptions that Indian men and women had Japanese about men Japanese and men and, women, and yeah. women. So, yeah. Okay. So mm. let's not do any perceptions here. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So like, but in the, yeah. So it's like a similar trend between India and Japan where the men are sent and uh, that's mm -hmm. how it goes. But, uh, but the good thing is that the Japanese women don't have to stay with their in-laws they stay independently here. Whereas in for in case mm -hmm. of Indian women, they have to stay with the in-laws. And that makes their life a little more challenging. So the husband is gone. The husband's in another country and the wife is at home with exactly. his in-laws without him to intervene. Exactly. So that is the tough side of the story. <laughs> I imagine it's the kind of work that Indian migrants in Japan does changes, right? We're moving from just making naan bread to programming an app uh which is seems to be the trend right uh that that's also going to help uh with with gender as why is that as funny? the roles move from racist stereotype to racist stereotype uh <laughs> it's not racist stereotype. it's true is it I mean, all, I've, all i've done is i've clumsily summarized Mecca's actual academic research uh, um but my okay well now let me make a now let me follow my racist point with a feminist point <laughs> presumably this means that, that the the gender gap may change because it's you know working in a restaurant is obviously a typically male job to do like i, I don't think i've ever seen an, uh, uh, okay i'm not i'm not speaking normatively <laughs> no, but, no, but, I'm but. Not, you know I'm, I'm just i'm speaking descriptively yeah. i'm just saying i know lots of very talented female indian computer programmers who have left the country, studied in America or whatever. And basically my, 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 my question right is, <laughs> is the... <laughs> well, exactly, there we go. You're, you, you wouldn't be in, in Berlin without, without the virtue of your, of your big brain. And, and, and so that, you know, you're a case in point, right? My question is, so, so racist statement made, you're one of the, feminist statement Mega, made, you're one of the good guest ones. patronized. <laughs> no, no, no. All right, well, can, okay, Mega, can you tie up all those, uh, those threads which I've just, uh, I've just thrown out? Okay, so so this the whole situation that I explained till now was like was the majority in the past, like but now the trend is changing, and many women 
they come with their husbands like if the husbands but their majority of the indian women in the indian community are still the trailing spouse they follow their husbands because of the change of uh, the you know change of jobs or change because they are transferred to japan the husbands so they follow them and when they follow them these women a few of them were actually working in india actually many of them were working in india and they had to quit their jobs and then they follow their husbands so when they get here uh the husbands have the job right and they would probably get the japanese language training as well but for these women it's a struggle for them to find a job for themselves so they end up either teaching in indian schools or in the language schools and when they go in on that side of uh profession they come across a different challenge of not being a native english speaker and they are rejected so many times that they just lose confidence and they feel like probably they will never get a job and you know like and not being able to work for so many years i think it reflects during my interview that they have overcome that feeling but they have also lost a uh, a bit of confidence in that sector like i remember one of my respondent once called me and she was like she wants to do something because uh 3 months after their marriage they moved to japan and she was actually getting a hike in her position so she was going to become a manager of her team and just before that they left japan so when she moved here she decided to have a kid because she thought that it's better you know to let yourself get rejected again and again that i just plan a family because i eventually have to do that and that will keep me occupied and i will do something useful and then uh, after a first kid she thought that she will try for jobs again she tried for a couple more more jobs and she got rejected again and then she was like okay let me just have a second kid and in this time she was learning her japanese also she's got n2 now so she's cleared her n2 level but now she was she called me and she was like you know what now i have lost confidence and i don't know where to start with the interviews because i have taken so many rejections that i feel like i'm not good enough so i think uh, consciously unconsciously it it affects your confidence and then you have to work hard to get over those rejections which you did not deserve in the first place just because you have a certain passport and some people may not be you know like i don't say that every indian speaks perfect english but my point here is that i am talking about the people who are educated and who do speak good english and can be language teachers they are being rejected just because they have a certain passport so that creates a lot of challenge for them and in terms of uh, going back to your uh, previous question about you know uh, wives staying away from their husbands so this is a different category of uh, couples where the husband come moves to japan and the wife stays back uh, because there either there is a pressure from the family or the husband uh, that she should stay behind and look after the parents or the financial pressure it could be many reasons uh, but some of are the some of the reasons are these uh, that you know it could be financial pressure or pressure from the family to stay with the family so these women there are women who have stayed away from their husband for as long as 10 years and then they finally insisted that we can't do this anymore we want to come and stay with you and they finally managed but in the 21st century uh, the longest they have to stay away for the visa procedure could be like 1 to 2 years 
uh, that visa procedure could be with the kind of uh, company they're working for, like especially in the jewelry, jewelry uh, business, jewelry business in Okachimachi area, because they are small businesses and they, they hire people from India. And if they get the families, then they feel like they will have to also look after the family. So there are issues like that in that sector. But the professionals who move to work for like uh, Japanese companies or international companies, usually their wives come along with them uh, as soon as the visa process is done. But in case uh, these, either of these professionals do not have enough money to support the child's education, they have two choices. Either they send their wife and the kid to India so that they can study there or they send their kids to the Japanese school. For those who can afford, they will send their kids to international school and very few these days are making a choice of sending their kids to Japanese schools as well because they feel like they can, they imagine living in the country for a longer time. Especially during the problems that we're experiencing during the pandemic, I think a lot of communities tend to, like the foreign community in Japan tends to try to rely on each other. You see all these different community populations pulling together. I'm curious about the ways that the Indian community within Japan interacts differently than it would if it was just in India. Yeah, because 40,000 Indian people doesn't actually sound like much as a proportion of the entire Indian population. And I imagine that they're pulled from all across India where there are their own cultural differences and differences in mother tongue, etc. Is it even fair? Has this whole podcast been predicated on a lie? Is there such thing as the Indian migrant? Okay, so this I argue in my book as well. So when the Indian identity has many aspects to it, of course, you know, like India is big, which state you come from, which religion you follow, or, you know, there are so many aspects to an Indian identity. But when you are living in a foreign country and you want, when you see an Indian person, and you don't have a lot of Indian people around you. So there is this uh, desperation you have and an extreme happiness you feel when you actually see another Indian. And then you don't care where you're from, what you do. The only thing that matters mm-hmm. is that you are an Indian. Oh my God, I'm so happy to meet you. That's that's so not the case with British people. We, we could we, we I, I could meet another English person in a hub and as soon as they say they're from a city that my city's not supposed to like, that's it. We just start swearing at each other. That's that's the exact opposite <laughs> of my experience. I think most Westerners in Japan, they also have that same thing where where they don't pick their friends based on the same things that they would pick them for back home. They just pick them based on the fact that they're there. And that, children, is how Bobby and I started our podcast. <laughs> Hey, thanks very much for listening to this episode 100, so what, of Japan by River Cruise. If you want to support the show, then we have a Buy Me A Coffee page. You go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Japan by River Cruise and decide how many coffees you'd like to buy me and Bobby to support what we do. And thank you to our guest this week, Dr. Meg Havadva. Uh, you should check out her book, Indian Migrants in Tokyo. It's currently on uh, Amazon, uh, where she thinks it's way too expensive. So send them a message and ask them to give you a discount. It's very good. <laughs> Even if you pay the full price, it's worth it. Uh, thank you to her, and thank you what, to everyone what a, for What a quote listening. for the front of the book. <laughs> Even at this outrageous price. <laughs> See you all next week.